You turn with me in your Bible, uh, or you can follow along as I read from God's Word in Luke chapter 2. Um, this morning, we're taking a break from our sermon series in Genesis to spend time, some time in one of my favorite passages of Scripture. So I'm delighted to uh, preach this portion of God's Word to you this morning. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. This is God's Word. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord! As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which has been prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we've heard now your word, and we seek to understand and apply it to our lives in preaching. And so we pray that you'd illuminate our mind and open our hearts and ready our will to respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I can remember the chill on my skin standing in a very long line in the early hours of the morning. Not in line for a Black Friday deal or for concert tickets for Taylor Swift. I was standing in line for the release of the next Harry Potter book. Anyone? No one's looking at me that way, so maybe it was just me. I like to think of myself as a member of the Harry Potter generation, because when I opened the first book, I realized that Harry and I were the same age, and on subsequent releases of the books, we tracked. 
We were more or less the same age as Harry grew up, so did I. See, as I've grown older, I've had some time to reflect on what brought me to that point of my family and I standing in the cold early in the morning for a book release. Why, why would we do that? I mean, there's this sense, the Harry, Harry Potter series renewed a sense of magic in our world for me and maybe for some of you. A sense that there was more to the world than the eye could see. That the world around us was full of wonder and surprise and excitement. At the conclusion of the fourth book, I distinctly remember staying up late into the night to finish. And all alone in my bedroom at 3 a.m., I had this kind of tragic moment of feeling crushed. Wishing, as I closed the cover of the book, that the magic was real, not just fiction. That there, were not, that there were spells and magical beasts and adventures and enchanted forests, but it just wasn't true. It was just my plain, ordinary life that I was waking up to in just a few hours in the morning. We want a life filled with wonder and awe to be wrapped in an epic story, fighting for life and health and peace against the powers of evil, but often doesn't feel that way. None of that is true. Have you ever felt this sense of disenchantment, this sense of disappointment in your life? That our deepest desires will not be satisfied. How could they? We live in a culture bombarding us with the message on our phones and elsewhere that our lives need more. We are not enough. We need more. There's kind of two extremes as I've surveyed the landscape in our culture for how to search for satisfaction. The first is hedonism, which has been, I think, rebranded in our day-to-day -day as YOLO. You only live once. You live for the vacation. You live for the weekend. This life is all you get, so make the most of it, for we eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's how they said it of old. Try new things, experiment, live life to the fullest, take risks. Look for better relationships, better food, more expensive vacations, a better job, a better home, a better car. Going from one thing to the next, always searching for that real thing, that thing you can hold on to, something that will finally fill our empty soul. It's what Dan opened our service with, with the Leonard Cohen quote, Someone who had the means and the leisure to pursue at more length than any of us have, looking for the better, the newer thing to fill his soul. And like many who have gone down that track before him have found, it's not enough. They're helpful only in as much as they show us they're not the real thing. There must be more. But like Leonard Cohen, many of us, with age, move on from hedonism to a different approach to finding satisfaction, and I'd call that cynicism. It's much of what the teacher of Ecclesiastes would teach us, that much of life is meaningless. It's this uh, sober, realistic outlook at life, that YOLO is a young man's preoccupation, that everything in this world, to an extent, will disappoint us. So the response then for the cynic is to drop the bar of their expectations of what this life can do to satisfy low enough so that they won't be disappointed. As long as we don't expect much of anything, we can't be disappointed. And there is a kind of wisdom here 
if there is not deep satisfaction to be found. But if there is, then you forfeit the opportunity to seize it. Friends, I believe this morning Simeon implicitly poses such a question to us. How can we be deeply satisfied? For Simeon is waiting and longed for the day when God would send his Messiah, his king. And when that day finally comes, we see in verse 29 that Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, I can die happy. I'm satisfied. That's what Simeon is saying in verse 29. He, he can die happy. Could we say such words this morning? Could we say in our heart of hearts, I could die happy. I'm satisfied. Yes, there's more that I want to do in life, but if God were to call me home today, I would, it'd be enough. I'd be satisfied. Since the 4th century, many Christians have recited Simeon's words here, which they call Simeon's song, an evening prayer every night, as directed in the Book of Common Prayer. This daily ritual of ending their day saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Isn't that a fascinating habit? Could we join with the saints before us in saying that? This morning, God's word, Jesus is speaking to us and saying that Jesus alone can satisfy our heart's desires. And we'll see this this morning. In verse 25, it says that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel, God's people. Consolation, this word meaning to comfort or to satisfy. Simeon is looking forward to the day when God's people will find satisfaction because it will be brought from the Lord's Messiah. And we heard in our Old Testament reading this morning that God has promised in Isaiah chapter 55 that all who are thirsty come to the waters, that God will satisfy. And elsewhere in Scripture, it's full of these promises that God will satisfy us. In in Psalm 107, it says, The Lord satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And in Jeremiah 31, speaking of the new covenant that the Messiah would Usher in, he says, my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. God's word this morning invites us to consider that Jesus alone can satisfy our heart's deepest desires. And we'll see this in two ways in our passage. First, that Jesus knows our desires. And next, that Jesus can fulfill those desires. So first, let's look at how Jesus knows our desires. And this is important because even if someone had the power, the capacity to fulfill our desires, if they don't actually know what they are, they can misfire. Think of the the relative who gives those Christmas gifts that are unwanted or unneeded, like tax software to a five-year-old. It's valuable, but it's not wanted or needed. It's this effect that sometimes large bureaucracies can have where they're too removed from the actual needs of the problem to be able to offer an effective solution. Does Jesus actually know what we need? Does he know our heart's desires? And as a man, Jesus knows our heart's desires. In verse 40, it's this, the wonderful summary a bit of what's going on in this passage. It says, And the child grew, that's Jesus, and became strong. And he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. 
In other words, Jesus was not born as an adult. He was born like all of us, as a child needing to grow physically in strength as well as emotionally and intellectually. Jesus experienced life like we do. He was a man. He was a human being. You know, Jesus' life, of course, began with this great miracle, this miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit and this virgin birth. And you might then think that his life was a series of miracle after miracle, but it's not the case. Jesus lived like a normal boy and then a normal man for most of his life. For example, he encounters the world like all of us. He enters the world as all of us did through the womb of his mother. And in verse 23, let's see if I can get this. It says, Uh, That Jesus, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And so we have this business in, in verse 21, 22, and 24 of Jesus' family going through in detail these rites, these ordinary religious practices that the people of God in the Old Testament did for the birth of a child. Jesus was not exempted from these. He he did them. He followed the law of the Lord. And we learn in verse 24 in particular that after childbirth. Leviticus 12 required this purification rite for firstborn sons. They had to offer a lamb if they had means or a pair of birds, or pigeons, if they were poor, as this kind of redemption price for the firstborn son of every family in Israel. And we learn, of course, that for Jesus' family, they did not have the means to offer the lamb, but had to provide the more affordable option of the pair of doves. And as parents... We know the desire God's put in our heart to provide the best for our kids. And what we learn here is that Jesus grew up in a family who would have known what it's like not to have the best things. Not having the, perhaps all that he needed, but had to make do, which many of you know as well. This establishes a pattern for Jesus' life, that Jesus lived like one of us. He, he knows our experience. He is among us. Jesus laughed and wept with his friends. Jesus ate meals and traveled and worked his, father, his adopted father's trade with all the ups and downs of life, the thorns and thistles, the frustrations of our work. He knew. But Jesus is not just a man. He is also God. And as God, he is able to see through the fog of this life to know what we really need. It's like Bono sang, saying, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And what the teacher of Ecclesiastes, I think, would join in in that song, yeah, this quest for satisfaction. They, they look and look and exhaust human inquiry trying to examine this question. It ends up like a dog chasing its tail, going in circles. And if Jesus was just a man, I don't think he could do better. But he is not just a man. He is also God. And so in verse 32, Simeon says of this God-man, he says, he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That Jesus, as light, can expose the darkness in our world and the darkness in our hearts and see through the fog of this life, of this quest. He exposes us. And then in verse 35, it says it even more clearly. So that Simeon prophesied. I'm not going to be able to say that word, but you know what I mean. In verse 35, so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed by Jesus. See, we don't really know what our desires often are, how how to satisfy them. 
The teacher of Ecclesiastes wasn't able to. Bono wasn't able to. We are not able to. Yet Jesus as God can reveal our deepest desires. Every time I fly out of Newark Airport, I am reminded of the incredible service that Uber provides. Alice and I recently put their service, their XL service to the test when our driver showed up at our door and there were five people, three suitcases, two car seats and a booster seat meant to fit in their car. And he did it. It was, it was amazing. I feel a little bad about it. <laughs> Uber has not typically been seen as a driver-friendly service. If you've ever driven for Uber or you've talked to your driver while being driven, you've likely heard of some of their concerns. After five years at the helm, Uber's CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi, decided he had to do something to better attract and retain drivers coming out of the pandemic. Part of the plan for Mr. Khosrowshahi was to enter into the experience of an Uber driver by becoming one himself. And so he made dozens of trips in a used Tesla Model Y around the hills of San Francisco. Of course, Mr. Khosrowshahi didn't do this in private. I saw, I think, a dozen news articles written about his exploits and what seemed to be a sophisticated PR campaign. We're living in America in 2023. This surprises none of you. We're naturally skeptic to such overtures, but consider Jesus our Emmanuel. He entered into our experience, experiencing the same ups and downs, emotions, desires, hopes, dreams that you and I do. And there was no commercial interest in doing so. In fact, he did it at great loss to himself. It's like our Advent series this past year. Jesus gets us. He gets us. Jesus, as God, knows our desires. If this morning you have big desires burdening your heart, you want to be the best. You want to be great. You do anything to be famous, to have celebrity. You want to be rich and comfortable and enjoy the, the fine things that life has to offer. You want, perhaps, to make this world a better place, to right what you see as wrong. You, maybe it's more modest. You just don't want to be so lonely. You, you want a life with friendship and companionship. Jesus had big desires. Jesus knows the ardent passion when zeal burned in him, and he fashioned a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple courts. Jesus knows the agony and anger that he felt at the death of his dear friend Lazarus. Jesus knows our longings when he longed for God's people to be saved and weeps over Jerusalem, his people's capital city. God gave us big desires. That's not an accident. The, the problem is not the big desires. The, the problem is the sin that twists those desires and distorts them. Because sin can create nothing. Sin lacks any real imagination or creativity. Sin can only misdirect our desires, thereby not fulfilling them, but by diminishing them. And so sin takes a good desire like belonging and twists it into possessiveness or gossip. Sin takes our desire for justice and right and twists it into vindictiveness. It takes passion and twists into lust. Sin is whitewash over a tomb. It's a gold rig in a pig's snout. It's a veneer of sexiness or glitter or glam over shallowness, death, and boredom. But God 
promises to be the satisfaction of his people. So this morning, if you have diminished your desires to protect yourself from the disappointment that we have all met many times in this life, Jesus knows the heartbreak, the disappointment, the letdowns of this life. But as the light of revelation, Jesus knows our desires better than we ourselves can. And he knows the good and great things in this life are good, but not enough in and of themselves. And so Jesus offers more. Jesus offers to fulfill our desires. See, marketers understand our desires quite well. But though they know our desires, they direct us to things which can't actually fully satisfy them. Jesus, can, he, he knows our desires, but can he actually have the power to fulfill them? And that's what we look at now. Can Jesus actually do the business of fulfilling these desires he knows? And just take a step back for a second and examine the context of this passage. You know, we're coming to the beginning of the gospel, Luke chapter 2. And in between the gospels, the first books in the New Testament, and the end of the Old Testament, the last verse in Malachi, there's this more or less 400-year gap called the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments. And during this intertestamental period, there was this acute longing of the Jewish people for God to answer their prayers to send a Messiah to deliver them from foreign occupation and oppression. They had a note of that with Judas Maccabee in 160 BC when there was this kingly or king-like figure who rose up and gave them freedom for a time, but it did not last, and it was not complete. And so leading into our passage this morning, people like Simeon and people like Anna would have been crying out for years. How long? Oh Lord, how long? And so in verse 25, we meet Simeon. He is a man in Jerusalem who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Righteous meaning he wanted to do what was right. He had a desire, a burden for justice. And devout meaning that he was a man who sought to connect every moment of his life in the presence of God, to live in the presence of God every hour, every moment of his life. And he's an old man. Probably not altogether easy for him to make the journey from his house to the temple courts. I mean, we, many of us know the effects of age. Your back would hurt. Maybe there's a little bit of wobble in his step. But in verse 25, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's, he's looking forward to, he's longing for. He is not satisfied right now. He's hoping that God will answer his promises and send the satisfaction he desires. And then in verse 28, Simeon took him in his arms, that's Jesus, the infant king, and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, he says, this is enough. I am satisfied. I can die happy. And so then we meet Anna, a widow of at least 60 years. Along with the challenges of advanced age, she's 84 years of old now, we learn that in, in that day, if you were aged 84 years, you know, we, we know that she was married for seven years. She likely had children, as, as women did in that, age when they, in, the, in that age when they were married. But having lived to 84 years, she likely would have 
outlived her children. She outlived her husband. She would have outlived her friends. So she's, she's buried her husband and probably her children and her friends. This is a woman who's known sorrow. And yet, we find her worshiping night and day, looking forward to the redemption of Israel. She's fasting and praying. Fasting, this, this means of using physical hunger to remind us of our deeper spiritual hunger. Because man cannot live on bread alone, but every word out of the mouth of God. And so in verse 38, after meeting Jesus, it says that coming up to them at that very moment, Anna gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. She's, she's ecstatic. She's overwhelmed with joy. She's met the answer to her longing. And it's this infant king, this baby Jesus. What made Simeon and Anna feel satisfied and, and happy enough, uh, able to die happy? I mean, all these long years that Simeon and Anna persevered and waited for the answer to their prayers, God has finally brought it. All the tears, all the brokenness and the heartbreak they've endured in their lives under the sun that we know well, all the disappointments and injustices they've suffered in a, a country that's under foreign uh, occupation, what was wrong, they can see in seed form in this infant king, what was wrong could be made right. The sin that stains their hearts and our hearts could be washed white. That even death itself could be undone. Jesus has fulfilled their heart's desires. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude... I humbly ask to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music, to inspire them to realize more and more of their capacities for living meaningful lives because there certainly is meaning in life. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. So wrote the jazz saxophonist John Coltrane in the liner notes to his album, A Love Supreme. Coltrane was once like anyone else. He had deep desires in his heart that if, if he's really good, if he's successful, if people applaud him and appreciate him enough, then he could be satisfied. He could be worth something. He could be significant. Having such great ambition, of course, is not the problem. But when your ambition becomes your greatest hope for fulfillment, it can weigh down on you with such great pressure and stress which is perhaps what led Coltrane early in his life to abuse alcohol and drugs. But one night, however, Coltrane had an experience of God's presence that was so arresting and powerful, he was forever changed. He no longer needed the drugs or the booze or the fame or the success to satisfy him. Instead, he could pour his soul into his music, no longer in this vain attempt to fill up an empty soul but out of the overflow of what God had filled him up with. So it was sometime later that after an exceptionally brilliant performance of the suite of Love Supreme, this 32-minute outpouring of praise to God, that Coltrane stepped down from the stage and was heard to say, Nunc Dimittis, which is the Latin translation of the Bible's words for our passage in Luke 2, verse 29. You may now dismiss your servant in peace. I can die happy. What would it take for
for you to be satisfied. To be able to walk into a room and not need to be affirmed and validated by others, but instead already have your soul filled. To be able to fail spectacularly at school or at work and be able to get back up because your identity is not in your work. To be able to allow yourself to feel the weight of the sadness and injustice in our world without being overwhelmed and crushed by it into despair. To not make an idol, but to simply enjoy the ordinary daily blessings that God gives us of productive work and good food and engaging conversation and hearty laughter. If this morning you don't claim Jesus as your Savior, the question I think for you would be, are you satisfied? Is your life enough? Or do you long for more? And if you do, on offer this morning and every day is Jesus' invitation to trust in him by faith and begin following him and discovering day by day more and more how he might satisfy your heart's desires. Like me this morning, if you're a Christian, the invitation is to know God, to know Jesus, the God-man, in a deeper and fuller way, to, to know him in a way that Simeon and Anna knew Jesus. Not as distant intellectual belief, but this passionate, life-filling understanding, connecting our faith with every moment, every day of our lives, wrestling with questions, working to understand and see faith at work in our lives. Because Jesus satisfies our heart's desires. As I've grown older, I've revisited those feelings of bitter disappointment from Harry Potter as I've encountered more feelings of larger disappointments in life, like all of you have. The more I know Jesus, though, the more I realize that there is more magic and richness and depth in our world than any fiction could ever match. We live in a world where God clothes flowers in greater glory than kings, where birds flapping to my bird feeder draw our maker's attention, where a cosmic battle is being raged between supernatural forces, where I can follow Jesus to victory over sin and Satan, and even on the last day, death itself, where even the smallest act of love to our neighbor, Jesus says it's as if we are doing it directly for him, where whether we work as a jazz saxophonist or homemaker or banker or in vocational ministry, our work can echo down the years to eternity as it joins in the song of God's people together. This is the world that Simeon and Anna could see only in a distance as they looked at the infant king, but that we now on this side of Easter can see in much greater fullness. And it's in this that we know that Jesus can satisfy our heart's desires. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the ways that our hearts go awry, that we seek satisfaction for our desires in all the wrong places. And yet this morning, you've so gently reminded us and invited us to consider how you alone can fully satisfy our desires. We pray, God, that this afternoon, this evening, this week, you would give us opportunity to know you in a deeper and fuller way and thereby find greater satisfaction in you. That we'd have full souls overflowing from what you provide 
and not needing to, to scrape and, and find it in the wrong places. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.